you found the Farcast, the weekly podcast in its sixth season of helping you understand what's going on in Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Now here's your host, Michael Farr. Welcome to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Thanks for joining us again this week. It is the first day of June, the first day of the last month of the second quarter uh, of 2023. Been a wild year. This is really one where you get, look at those first five months and no matter what you were telling me on December 31st, 2022, I'm pretty much betting you didn't call this one and you probably didn't get it very close. But uh, we have AI, we have all of these tech things that have done fabulously well and everything that worked really well in 2022 has about sunk you, has about sunk you as an investor in 2023. This happens from time to time, and old hand investors say uh, trends uh, resume over time. Things go back to fundamentals over time. And everybody who has said, no, 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 far, this time it's different, is now doing something else uh, in their careers. Years ago, I was on uh, the floor of the stock exchange getting ready to go on Squawk Box. And I saw Art Cashin, who's a great friend. And Art says, hey, Michael, what you doing here today? And I said, I'm, I'm on with some hedge fund manager who's up 1,400%. And I'm supposed to be the old money guy, slow money investor. He goes, yeah, you remember that hedge fund guy that was up uh, like 2,000% seven or eight years ago? I said, no. He says, exactly. And he walked away from me. There's always there's always a flash in the pan. And there was always a good lesson uh, you could get from Art Cashin every time you talk to him. There's always a good lesson every time we talk to Jim Urio too, TJM Institutional Services, the voice of the Chicago floor and exchange and our great friend. Welcome back to the Farcast, Jim. Thank you for having me, Michael. We're glad you're here. Well, we got a debt limit bill through the House last night. And, and you know, it really Washington irony. I think Kevin McCarthy came out stronger and Joe Biden came out stronger. You don't see both sides come out stronger, but they did it through compromise. Wouldn't it be awesome if these idiots in Washington could could figure out, hey, we both just came up with gains because we compromised. How about that as a concept, fellas? Well, it's such an interesting concept when you think of how um, how uh, it, adversarial it's been for 30 years. I, I love to see this. Um, I will point out, too, that we're still we've ballooned the national debt from nine trillion dollars just before the financial crisis to almost 32 trillion dollars now. So I'm still concerned about profligate spending. I'm still concerned about the fact that they've become emboldened by the fact that there's no no substitute for the dollar's sovereignty around the globe. And I think they're using that a, a little bit to their advantage and perhaps not the advantage of the dollar long term. But again, this is a th something that could play out over long periods of time. But the compromise is beautiful. The whole time I was watching it was funny because, you, you know, we, we said, and both you and I have been around doing this a long time, they were going to fight tooth and nail, fight tooth and nail, and at the last possible second, come right. up with a deal and then tell us right. how they sit, came in the right horse and saved us. And those fringe people, you know, on both sides saying, we're not going to vote for it, we're not going to vote for it. That to me was like the guy in a bar being held back going, hold me back. Right? If I, you didn't hold me back, I would have kicked those guys' butts. <laughs> that was the way, which, by I the way, that. I have a little. I love right. that. That's what it is. It's just yeah. theater. Absolutely. It's just theater. Absolutely. Just theater. So, again, but I, I feel good about it. The market should feel good about it, too. 
I still, um, again, you said about the resiliency of the economy before, which I think it's amazing that um, it's withstood such punches from higher rates and has still stayed pretty stable. I'm amazed. I still think a slowdown is coming. I still think a recession is coming. And again, the, the, the yield curve is telling me that I'm right. So I'm not just basing it in my own wild opinion. I think I missed it by a couple quarters. So perhaps by the end of this year is when the recession starts. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, we talked to Jeff Lacker last week, Harry. Was it Jeff last week or week before? Anyway, Jeff Lacker, former president of the Richmond Federal Reserve. And I asked him a couple of questions. He says rates have to go to six and a half, seven percent period. They have to because the the current uh, uh, real rate is zero right now. Inflation's at five percent. Interest rates are at five percent. That's zero. That's where we were before all of this mess began. He said, you've got to take interest rates higher than the rate of inflation if you're going to kill inflation. I said, but wait a minute, Jeff. It was 9.1% a year ago. It's 5% now. It's come down 4%. Can't these guys pause just to see, as you and I have known, Jim, over our careers, that it takes 12 months for really for you to see the effect of a change in interest rates. And they've changed. They've jacked the thing 5%. Let's Maybe they've done enough. Maybe they don't have to go to excess this time. They say they're going to pause at least for a meeting or so here. We'll see if that matters. The other thing that Lacker said, I said, hey, Jeff, why haven't we had a recession? He said, because the Fed hasn't raised rates enough. I said, so wait a minute. You're going to tell me that, that basically the Fed wants to have the recession? He goes, well, wants to have. It's an acceptable consequence. What they have to do is kill inflation, and they haven't killed inflation. And that resonated, Jim, with me. They haven't killed inflation, and that's what they've got to do. That's job number one. What do you think about what Lacker said, where interest rates are, and how you invest through this? So the first thing, just to pick it apart, what Jeffrey Lacker said, and I know he's a, he's a good guy, and I know he's a friend of yours. Good too, guy and he, a hawk, he, though. He's always hawkish. And always a hawk. But when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We, we know yeah. that expression's out there. So to, th to think that a Fed governor looks and says, oh, heck, you know, inflation's running too hot. We need to use more of really the only tool that we have. And I know they say they have a whole host of tools, but really one that's that's more prominent than the other. So to hear him say that is not the most strange thing in the world. Um, we all know that the efficacy of these rate hikes takes, call it six to nine months, maybe even more to filter through. I know you and I had a conversation once before saying it's probably quicker now than it used to be. So let's say it's six months. So right now we're just beginning to feel the effects of the rate hikes that came six months ago. I think it is a prudent time to pause and see what happened. I think that um, I'll say again that I'm amazed with the resiliency of the economy. Um, things like housing, which is amazing. You know, they, they jack up mortgage rates from two and a half percent to seven percent. So one thing happens is that, you know, new, new home buyers can't afford, obviously. So that should make the prices go down. But in certain pockets, prices are going up because there's no supply because people no like supply. me, I'm not parting with my two and a half percent mortgage. So they choke supply. So everything is not a clean, as clean a road as they think it's going to be. And I think that that's pretty amazing. I think they will pause. I don't think they'll be hiking again. I disagree with Jeffrey Lacker. I think that we're starting to see inflation. Um, you know, not accelerate to the downside, but it continues. You'll at least give me that, right? That it continues to go lower from those peaks back, um, you know, nine, 10 months ago, correct? When I said that to him, he just kind of ignored it. He was like, yeah, it's not low enough. That's all. I mean, you know, it was sort of like, nah, you didn't give me the answer that you're supposed to give me. So I'm going to just talk about something else. And I look, a lot of people in our business do that, right? I mean, you didn't give me the yeah. answer. OK, so I'm going to just keep talking. <laughs> I mean, and if you do TV and radio and all of this kind of stuff enough, uh, you learn how to do that. You learn how to do that. I think this oh, guy's an idiot. I'm well, going to talk about my own book. 
when he, I would, I learned a, a skill and I think you have too. If they ask me a question that I have no idea what the answer is, I just pretend I heard a different question and just go on with an answer that wasn't even related. Right. Uh, my word is interesting. So when they, when they ask me a question, I have no idea what the answer is. I go, interesting. And then I fill in with whatever was on my mind and I thought I was going to say next anyway. And, and, but the, the great part is that the guys, the people who are answering the questions, by and large, are throwing them at you just as quick as we're throwing answers back. And they lose the train of thought. I mean, they lose Amen. the thread, like what they were going to come. Okay. So, okay. This is just inside baseball. We actually do have some thoughts we, we, we want to get out here. You know, with, you mentioned mortgage rates, pushing 7% again, pushing 7% again. And yeah, uh, you know, banks are still, banks are not still eager to lend money. And I listened to a uh, economist yesterday, uh, I think on Squawk Box, saying that, you know, the 30-year mortgage is one of the riskiest pieces of paper, one of the riskiest structures for any bank or institution. I mean, if you ask somebody, would you loan me money for 30 years at X percent? Would you loan me money for 30 years at 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%? What? They, people do it, but but boy, that puts you on the hook, doesn't it? It sure does. By the way, to answer your question, I would loan you money for 30 years. Actually, the only thing that would come into that equation is if you're going to be around in 30 years. Yeah, because we're both back. old. Yeah. <laughs> we're both well, okay. Old. Uh, if you had a death, if you had a death call, uh, there used yeah. to be something there, in munis, you could buy a muni with a death put. And these things were great. They were like, they were almost like flower bonds, but flower bonds you'd buy at a discount. But what a death put was, was for individuals. And if the named owner died, you could put it back to the issuer so they could so you weren't tying up your estate. There were also things called flower bonds, which were basically zero coupon bonds you bought at a discount that would mature at the death of the holder. They got rid of those because people started to rush uh, and, and they still existed when you know and I started in the business, Jim. Sure. Uh, and and people would rush out when someone was on their deathbed and buy these flower <laughs> bonds because you'd get immediately redemption at par. You'd buy them at a discount. You get them at redemption at par. And people were making money on you know old Uncle Joe getting ready. If you could just get the damn bond in his name in time, you know. Um, uh, imagine that people finding the loophole and taking advantage of it. But to answer your question too, what like let's put ourselves back a year and a half ago where rates had been zero for essentially 10 years. If you came to me with that proposition to lend you money for 30 years at 5%, I yes. probably would have jumped at it then. Because yes. all I'm saying is that perception is so weird. I remember a year and a half ago, I was at the New Orleans Investment Conference and a year ago, and Peter Bookbar started talking about putting money in two-year treasuries. And I was thinking like, putting money in two-year treasuries? And I was like, wait a sec, there's actually a yield now. I forgot about that. I, I, I hadn't even thought about a treasury in 10 years but anyway perception changes over time it it, it changes over time and I, I tell people this this freaks out people I'm, i know normally don't talk about my personal stuff ever in the media or anywhere else but i have a mortgage i have a mortgage that i got uh eight years ago or nine years ago and uh it rolled over or it was coming due it was a 10-1 arm uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, 10-1 arm, but it was on a 30-year amortization. So basically, it's fixed for 10 years on a 30-year amortization schedule, and the rate can float after that 10-year fix. It was getting ready to float in 2020, I think 2020 or 2020, end of 2021. And uh, they came back to me and said, we'll, give, we'll redo that note and refinance it at two and a quarter. So at the so end of 2021, 
uh, I took even more money on the mortgage than I had before uh, at two and a quarter percent, and it's fixed for eight years. And I can take that, all of that. I mean, I I will tell you, I didn't need the mortgage. I could have afforded just to put equity into that house. Um, but two and a quarter percent, I got money invested now at five and a quarter percent. <laughs> I'm making three and a quarter, three percent or three and a quarter percent on the bank's money. Um, and that this just sitting, this is wonderful. But imagine if you're that bank that was making all those loans. I mean, a lot of this right. stuff is tough and we still have a real estate headwind coming up, Jim. Uh, so I'm using a lot, I'm talking too much yeah. today. I'm not hearing enough from you. Tell me what you're thinking about in terms of markets and the technicals, because things don't look bad, do they, on the S&P and equity? No, no, they actually look good. A lot of people were talking about the 4,200 level in the S&P. I've been consistent that I needed a couple settlements, maybe even a week, above 4250. Now we're knocking on that door right now. And I know for six months, I've been talking doom and gloom about the economy, but I've never been talking particular doom and gloom about the equity market. And I can make a relatively bull case. You know, we injected $6 trillion into the economy, 4 trillion of it ahead of the normal progression of M2 money growth. Um, we've only taken two back. So there's still a, a lot of money sloshing out there in the system that hasn't been pulled out yet by, um, you know, all the, by the policies to, to reduce liquidity. So there is still a bit of a bull case. And if you want to make the bull case too, the, the um, uh, futures markets are still saying almost 200 basis points of easing by the end of 2024. So if you believe there's still a bunch of liquidity in the system that hasn't been pulled out yet, there is a potential for the market to slow down within the, uh, the economy to slow down with the next couple of months, causing the Fed to stay skipping for a few more meetings. Um, I think you can make a bull case. The fact that this rally has been led and so concentrated by those uh, few names to me is not a good sign. But I think when we get that settlement above those levels I'm talking about, and in technical analysis, you know this, but to your viewers, a lot of people think it's voodoo. It's not voodoo. What it is, it's really, it's about psychology. It's about momentum. And I think the rally will broaden out if I get those parameters met. That idea that the Fed's going to cut 200 basis points in 2024 is all, is, is, almost saying uh, that the, the, the market's telling you you're going to go into recession in 2024. Because, ladies and gentlemen, just keep in mind, every time you hear these predictions, breathless, hopeful predictions, the Fed's going to cut rates, the Fed's going to cut rates, this is going to be great. It's not going to be great. It's never great when oh. the Fed's cutting rates. It's just that they only do it to keep the economy from going into d depression or certainly a recession, or to bail us out of one. But it's not great when they cut rates. So no. just keep it in mind. And, and if the markets are really predicting that uh, 200 basis points, they're telling you you're going in a recession. Or are they not, Jim? What am I missing? No, they're, no, they're definitely. The one thing that was happening a couple months back is that the futures market was predicting mild rate cuts. Now it's now it's predicting steeper rate cuts. But you and I remember having this conversation going, this, this is absolutely asinine. If the Fed turns around and is going to pivot to cutting, they're going to be doing so because burning timbers are falling from the ceiling and there is a calamity on the horizon. When they go to cut, that will be the case. And they'll probably cut deeper than even if when this situation plays out, if it plays out, they'll probably be cutting even deeper than 200 basis points to address something that's terrible. Now, I don't, you know, when we look back at 2007, 2008, and you see like 30 years of excess built up in the least liquid asset real estate, to me, that seemed like such a dark, dark place. I don't foresee that happening now. And the fact that we've had 
relatively high rates for almost a year and a half now. I think some of the excesses are being um, worked out. I do, like I said, I will say a recession again, but I think it's a longer slog recession than a deep in the hole where everyone has to get out of a certain asset. I will say this, that our government is doing everything they can to prolong inflation. I'm talking about through regulation, through taxation, through threats to different companies. Okay, but Jim, this is where this is where politics runs into the hard road of what is correct, right? I mean, politics want expansion. Uh, politicians want to be spending your money. Politicians want to be doing, and then they want enough laws to say, but we're going to protect everything at the same time. They drive the costs completely higher, uh, and you've got basically the whole legislative side still wanting to increase spending. This isn't this debt limit debt thing that some reduction. It doesn't reduce debt. It doesn't reduce any debt. And here's I want to make one uh, what I believe is going to be a very important point and see if see if see how Jim feels and reacts to it. We're telling you, ladies and gentlemen, as we've told you for months, when the data line up this way, when the numbers line up this way, you have a recession in the offing and you see Wall Street agreeing with that with these uh, rate easings next year. So you say to Urio and Far, but the market's still going up. You guys keep being negative and the market's still going up. Remember where we started about flower bonds. People would rush to the brokerage firms to buy bonds that could profit on Uncle Fred's death. I'm not kidding about this. People would use them to help pay funeral expenses and everything else. When the towers were falling on 9-11, they had to go in and physically evacuate people out of Wall Street Towers. And I won't mention the firm's name, but it was right next door, right next to the Twin Towers, watching the smoke come up because they were busy shorting the markets. They were busy making money. So you're telling Wall Street, wait a minute, I've got six months before I have to worry about this recession. I can still make money. I'm in. I'm going to stay at that table. You turn those machines back on. You know, I'm here to make money. The guy's on the floor with the heart attack from trading places. His brother's on the floor. Screw him, he says. Turn the machines back on. We can still make money. That's where we are, I think, folks. This is still a make money time, but we're watching the car drive straight towards the brick wall and nobody's seeing it swerve much. Are they, Jim? No, and I agree with you, particularly when I see, when you were talking, I could th all I could think about was those five or six tech-related names. That part of the reason they're attracting so much money is because of the AI revolution, which might be a little bit exaggerated in my opinion. But part of it, I think, is a defensive move within stocks that the big names with the big balance sheets and everybody wants to have them. You know, every every ETF, every hedge fund wants to make sure they, they have, we have Amazon, we have NVIDIA. And so they're chasing their tail right now. And I think that could be problematic. And I'm going to be certainly watching that as well. But again, I still, I still, it always keeps coming back to me that the fact that there's so much extra dough in the system sloshing around that it Lots has to end up somewhere. Yeah. Lots of it's out there and, and it's there sopping it up and buying the dips. And we're going to keep watching it. And we're going to keep talking to Jim Urio from TJM Institutional Services. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Jim, so much. Thank you. When we come back, Dan Mahaffey from the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress, he called it right. This got right through the House of Representatives. And then in segment three, we go to Greg Valliere today. We're going to get to talk to Greg, see what he has to say, see if he agrees with Mahaffey. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. Thank you for joining us this week on The Farcast. 
it's time for political analyst Dan Mahaffey and your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast, Dan Mahaffey, the senior political analyst on the Farcast, director of policy for the Center of the Study for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Joins us as he does each week here in season six. And he was right, folks. Sailed right through Congress. Biden, McCarthy worked it out. And oddly, both Biden and McCarthy seem to uh, have gained and seem to appear stronger for reaching a compromise than they uh, would be if they had dug in their heels and not gotten this done. Could Washington learn a lesson that perhaps compromise might work again, Dan? Well, look, I don't want to give them too big of a pat on the back for solving a crisis of their own making. Uh, But this is a sign that the deal can go through, that the center uh, in our institutions can prevail against some of the crazies at the periphery. Uh, That said, you know, we're now on the clock when it comes to the Senate. I think we'll have uh, it's it's really a procedural matter now. It's just how do they do the amendments? There are senators who want to have amendment votes. They set the threshold at 60 votes. And you simply hope none of these amendments pass, because if any amendment did pass, you'd have to go back to the House to, to vote on that. So if we okay, don't no, have wait, any... wait, wait, that's that's important. So the senators, what what sort of amendments are, are out there and who wants to add? OK, them? for example, I'll take one. And the, why are they the... bothering? Because they know they can't screw this thing up. So there's, there's got to be some reason. Wanna, they still want to have their say. Look, everyone's been focused on the House and the uh, White House for a little while. The Senate needs a little bit of their time. Uh, but look, a lot of this has already been, you know, it, it's a damp squib, at least when it comes to a crisis. The question now is, does it get done by Friday or Sunday? The amendments in question are the Virginia delegation is angry because uh, the uh, Hidden Mountain, or I forget the Mountain Valley or Hidden Valley Ranch Pipeline, I forget exactly what it's called, but this pipeline that's going to be built uh, from uh, West Virginia into Virginia that Manchin wants, that's in there. The Virginia delegation wants a vote on that. Uh, Some of the GOP and other defense hawks in the Senate are angry about the budget caps for DOD. Do they want an amendment vote on that? Uh, There might not even be that because they're told perhaps later in the year we'll have another defense or Ukraine supplemental to get around some of these uh, defense caps. Uh, That said, though, it's it's sort of the classic Washington deal. If you want to speak to your supporters, you claim victory on the things that were priorities for you. So uh, Democrats are happy that the the cuts weren't as expansive and that this is taken off the table until January of 2025. Uh, And Republicans can go back and say, look, we've got the most significant spending caps put in place since 2011. Uh, You know, I got a um, uh, email last night and it was having long conversations. Actually, they were texts with um, one of my colleagues who asked that, uh, hey, how about doing another uh, debt ceiling follow-up summit really for for uh, and and video it and really publish this thing and don't you think we ought to do it and i said no i think it's over with it's over there's no there by the time we get this together which would probably be the beginning of next week to have guests and really do it it's, it's over there's no i mean it's two years down the road and there's nothing for us to talk about is this debt ceiling thing over dan 
It is. It's all over, but the uh, the fat lady singing, and that's going to be the you know the Senate getting this through, and then the final deal being signed. We're not going to get, I think, anywhere close to a uh, precarious X date. Um, and a look, a lot of this was again the 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 sound and fury more than the actual you know negotiations. The the ones that were the loudest were the ones furthest from the actual negotiations. Um, so now that we get to this point, we will see the. Uh, you know, this outcome, I think, unfold, like I said, either by by Friday, given that many of the senators want to protect their weekend plans. Uh, but look, if as we've said, we've compared them to the kid who asks, uh, hey, teacher, you forgot to sign the uh, homework for the weekend. Uh, there may be a need for them to stay till Sunday. And just to be clear, this is a crisis of Congress's making that we have voted on, I think now, had gone to the limit and had to do these votes something like 18 times since- uh, Right, since and, and, and these are these are small spending caps over the next few years in the relative scheme of things. We should not also be patting ourselves on the back- We haven't reduced any deficit. Any they the call it a deficit reduction, right? They call it a deficit reduction. It's deficit reduction, but we're not facing any of the, the debt issues, the entitlements, the long-term questions that- uh, that are that are still out there that can just uh, is still kicked down the road so but to be clear the deficits are still going to run at a trillion dollars a year and maybe over the next seven years we may have reduced an increase further increase in deficits by a total of a trillion dollars so one seventh of a trillion dollars a year that we've saved from i guess additional spending it, what, had we not passed this, there would have been even additional, more additional spending and, and over those trillion dollars. We're still going to yeah, run and, and the way a few conservatives have at least justified it is, is they're not good. It's not going as far as they'd like, but they acknowledge you can't turn around an oil super tanker in one uh, one turn of the ship. And this would be the oil super tanker that was built by Congress that is spending money and bleeding oil all over the oceans as quickly as they can possibly do it. There's a big hole in this boat, but uh, they keep filling it pretty much with borrowed money, borrowed money. They're borrowing money in those bond markets every day uh, to keep spending more money. This is this is nothing you would do at home, folks. So politically, Dan, it, a week from now, this is all over. Yeah, a week from now, we're on to uh, one, how do we allocate the budget under these spending caps? Now, they at least have a number. Uh, two, I think for Republicans, now that this this debt ceiling stuff is done, a lot of what they want to get to, I think, are the Biden scandals that they've wanted to bring attention to. So I think we'll hear a lot more about the, the Hunter Biden hearings. Uh, and then on the other side of the, uh, I wouldn't say the other side of the aisle, but on the other side of the agenda, as it were, uh, the one thing that hasn't seen its budget cuts are defense spending. So I expect all the process now of getting the NDAA, all those defense bills and stuff together into a into a single package. That's going to be a big process for a lot of lawmakers. Uh, and it's going to be one of those things that everyone's going to want to tack their priorities onto, uh, particularly China-related stuff. So this allocation process that they go through and all of these discussions, they're really not going to affect Wall Street or the America, average American. This doesn't affect Social Security, nothing. All of that stuff is passed. But these allocations could be important to Wall Street in that if they're where where we spend money on defense, where the money does get spent in terms of infrastructure or other places for the money that they've got, those things yeah. benefit. And I think the biggest thing the business why. community is going to say is a win out of this entire package is the permitting reform that we're permitting going to get. Reform. Do you think you're going to get see any permitting reform? 
That is, that's going to be part of this deal that you're going to get through uh, clearing oh, that God. up. And if the, the energy industry, this is seen as a big win for them. And one of the reasons they got uh, conservatives on board, as well as some Democrats who acknowledge that you need permitting reform for green infrastructure as well. We're watching uh, new uh, information today. There's some suggestion, though, it seems kind of fuzzy, that uh, President Trump admitted to having these classified documents that he could declassify by just thinking that they were declassified, is what the president said. I'm not making that up, folks. He said a president can declassify anything that the president wants to declassify. He, he, all he had to do was think about it, was the next line out of his mouth. Uh, so uh, everything is declassified that... Um, uh, the president happens to think is declassified. Uh, so uh, I wonder if the labels would change somehow, uh, if there's some connection between the president's mental powers, you know, something like, you know, uh, uh, Elizabeth Montgomery used to have to twitch her nose. Um, on my favorite Martian, uh, he used to have to put his fingers at his temples, had to put his fingers at his temples, and then and then he could use his mind ray. Uh, well, I don't know. We'll have to watch that. Anyway, for, yes, for the younger listening. for the younger listeners in Harry Potter, it was Accio Classificaso. <laughs> flick your wand. You need a wand. Well, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Maybe there's a wand in the, in or, the for him office. a pitching wedge or Mar-a-Lago. I don't. I don't. I don't, I don't know Mar-a-Lago. Okay, uh, Dan. Uh, we see Ron DeSantis sort of emerging. And yet when we talk with Greg Valliere, which we've already done, his segment's coming up next, but we recorded it yesterday. Uh, he thinks huge percentage that uh, Trump or Biden will be a candidate for president, but he doesn't think likely that it will be both Trump and Biden. What do you think? Mm, I think that's an, that's an interesting take. I think we've been burned many times by saying that Trump has uh, some hurdle ahead of him that's going to bring him down you know we we've done it from his insults to john mccain to his uh the way he talked about the disabled to uh grab them by the blank to all these things that you've had throughout we we thought would be the end of his political career these legal cases though are a new level of complexity that are going to unfold over the next few months the other argument, though, for the the do we not see Biden? It's a question of his health and mental capacity. Does something unfold uh, given his age over the next few uh, months and his health? The odds, though, still point to a rematch of both. I just don't see the clear alternative. Obviously, the Democrats can't really put one forward as long as the incumbent is there and says he's running, barring that crisis I described. Uh, and then for the Republican side, still comes down to that uh, DeSantis might be Trump without the drama, but he's also Trump without the crowds, Trump without the rally. I just don't see Trump the, without the charisma, Trump without that support behind him. And I, I will say one thing about DeSantis, and I've listened to what he said in some of his speeches in Iowa uh, what he's saying in New Hampshire and a few other places. And he's not attacking Trump directly, but he is saying things like, well, we should have 55 senators rather than 49, or we should have, you know, we should have won these other races, but for Trump kind of is the is the subtext. He's not saying it out loud. And I wonder if DeSantis is, he's either being too smart or too cute because he is 
appealing in some ways to the political wonk in the Republican Party who thinks that the Trump pathway is not a pathway to win, and perhaps they're overrepresented in some of these early caucuses and primaries and, and that level of voting, those kind of highly active Republicans who uh, might hear this message that, that Trump's just not a winner anymore. He's dragging us down. Uh, that said, are those people swamped by that still mega crowd who says, look, Donald Trump is my man. Um, and look, Trump is going to, you see it in his rhetoric about Kaylee McEnany hosting on Fox now, other things. He is turning his guns against anyone in DeSantis world or alongside DeSantis. So beyond that, the, the ultimate question looming for Republicans is, if it's not Trump, what is Trump going to do to undercut the Republican who is actually running? So what are your odds of having another Democrat in the White House, even if it's not Joe Biden versus a, versus if Trump is, is in the race? You're, you're sort of saying that there's a you're, you're sort of saying if Trump's Trump in the race. Win. I put the odds of, of the Democrat winning around 60 percent, 65 percent. Trump is just a he's not a viable political brand beyond his base of support. People are established in what they feel and know about him after all these various scandals combined with the legal trouble. If he is the Republican nominee, I think that's arguably the easier case for Democrats, uh, much easier. Dan, we've got to go. What are you going to be watching? What are we going to be talking about by the end of June? Or are we going to be on vacation? Are we going to finally get to a quiet time in politics? It's only been six years. Look, I think we're going to be looking at a lot more of, I said, like these uh, domestic scandal stories. What are the uh, Hunter Biden hearings, FBI hearings? Are these things? Like that, so that I'm, when you say that, I'm, I'm immediately saying, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm immediately hearing, okay, so nothing substantial, just more political noise, uh, more Jerry Springer stuff, rest his soul, rather than, uh, you know, uh, real Lester Holt kind of stuff. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Because the, the debt ceiling stuff's done and it's now, you know, it's up to the appropriators to do their job. So how do you how do you score some of these political points now? What, what, one, some uh, friend advised me year, years ago that uh, if you look up and realize that the life you're living would make a good Jerry Springer episode, you should change things quickly, change things quickly. Uh, we're, we're moving into the Jerry Springer period of politics. God help us. Dan Mahaffey. The Director summer's hot and we're running out of ice. And we're running out of ice, baby. So, <laughs> Dan Mahaffey is the Director of Policy at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress, our senior political analyst on the forecast. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Coming up, Greg Valliere, as promised, stay with us. Michael Farr and the forecast are proud to support Heroes, Inc., Heroes supports the spouses and children of law enforcement officers and firefighters who gave their lives in the line of duty to the greater Washington, D.C. community. Their singular goal is to honor the supreme sacrifice made by these individuals by caring for their families. Heroes' work begins within 24 hours of the tragic loss and continues indefinitely. We invite you to learn more about Heroes' mission at heroes.org. We hope that you will consider supporting heroes as they endeavor to honor those who protect us. That's heroes.org. Heroes, here for you, here for good. And now, back to the forecast 
and your host, Michael Farr. Thank you for joining us on the Farcast. And now, back to your host, Michael Farr. Welcome back to the Farcast. I am Michael Farr. Terrific week here on the Farcast, the big debt ceiling uh, division. The coming together is Washington now working the way we think it should work with the extremes on either end, but there's something happening in the middle. And those quiet voices are more in the middle, aren't they? The loud voices are out on either end of the bell curve. So what do we do to understand it? Well, of course, we go to Mahaffey every week, and then uh, we, we're going to really just bump it up again a notch to my great friend, Greg Valliere. Uh, Greg Valliere has followed Washington as closely as anyone I've ever known in the business. He gets it. He gets those people. God help him. I mean, you got to worry a little bit about somebody who really understands Washington, really. Hey, Greg Valliere, welcome back to the Farcast. It's a blessing and a curse uh, yeah, right. following, following Washington. Yep. yep. <laughs> well, you're never you're never bored, Greg, following Washington. Never. Uh, never. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Greg, I am a uh, I am a golfer, and I shouldn't I shouldn't make light of this, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you anyway. I keep the number for the suicide hotline in <laughs> my in my phone in my phone, and I text that contact when one of my buddies who's I'm having a really hard time with, you know, who gives me a lot of gas on the golf course is having a bad day, and he'll just hit a shot in the water. I, I twist the knife. I text him the number for the suicide hotline. And sometimes I'll go over and say, you know, I feel like I should ask for your shoelaces and belt at this point in the round because this is getting dangerous. Watching Washington feels a lot that way, doesn't it? It sure does. It's been quite a week. It's been uh, talk about odd bedfellows. You've got Democrats bailing out uh, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, you've got Republicans uh, opposed to their own House Speaker. Uh, and you've got all of a sudden Joe Biden, I think, having a little pop here. I think he's I think he's coming out of this in pretty good shape. He's done this. This looks like old Joe, doesn't it? I mean, he's yep. largely kind of been behind the scenes. He quietly I mean, he said he was going to get it done, but he's been making deals and they're they're um, they're, they're not perfect. They're not the high profile. I want everything I wanted and I killed those other guys. This is a real we found a middle in between us. No, I think you're absolutely right. And and Biden gets to sit back now as we finally avoid a default. He gets to sit back and watch the Republicans imploding. Uh, you see this bitter, bitter fight that could cost Kevin McCarthy his job. You see now DeSantis and Trump bashing each other in Iowa uh, in the next few days. So the Republicans are in some disarray while old Sleepy Joe gets a deal and avoids default. You know, when we when I when we started this process, uh, I was talking with various guests, including Dan Mahaffey, and said, OK, look, he makes this deal with Biden. And part of the deal is I can't get every vote I need to pass this. You've got to get votes, too. And I think Mahaffey said that would so out outrage the far right Freedom Caucus uh, that they will immediately trigger uh, a vote of no confidence for the speaker. And it I can't tell if that's going to happen now or not, Greg. Does McCarthy survive this? And if he does, uh, does that threat really go away for future votes that become contentious? 
Well, two points I'd make. First of all, talk about deja vu. This happened to John Boehner, who I always yes. thought was a was a good guy and tried tried his very best. It happens to Paul Ryan, not exactly the same, but Ryan couldn't deal with these people. And now it could happen as well to uh, to Kevin McCarthy. So that th that's a sign of how difficult it is uh, to work in, in the in the House. And I think that will uh, that will prevail. Is it, so but does does McCarthy keep his job? Does this get to a vote of no confidence? Could very well come to that. I don't think right away. And I would say this that there is no logical successor. Who's going to replace him? Steve Scalise, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene? I mean, I, I don't see a logical successor. That's probably the strongest thing that Kevin McCarthy has going for him. And, and a, a majority, a vast majority of House members like the guy. And I think, frankly, that McCarthy has shown some real skill in, in the last couple of weeks, he's made a lot of progress. He's a good negotiator. And to get rid of him for the Republicans, I think, would be suicidal. I got to tell you that I agree completely that, that McCarthy has really surprised me on the upside. Frankly, yep. Biden surprised me on the upside on both sides of this. They both yep. they've done. I think they both come out of this stronger, which is odd when both sides kind of come out stronger. However, yep. Greg, uh, uh, with, with with all due respect, the lack of a logical successor when they were trying to elect right. Speaker yep. McCarthy and went to 16 freaking votes yep. didn't slow down the row of no, you know, yep. the five guys who just said no, hell no. And they didn't even listen. Just no, we're not going to. So the, the lack of a successor didn't stop them before. The, the issue is if they call for the vote, do the rest of the Republicans squelch it? What does it take to actually oust a speaker once the speaker's seated? Well, as you know, Michael, uh, Kevin McCarthy perhaps foolishly accepted a lot to become House Speaker. And one of the things yeah, that he, ex he, he accepted was was that just one person, one disgruntled uh, radical could uh, could bring up a, a, a vote on ousting him or could try to remove him from office. I don't think that will happen. I think that McCarthy will find a way to get around that. And again, I look at all of the key House Republicans. And I don't see a logical successor right now for Kevin McCarthy. If they have a vote, though, if they have that vote, somebody says, OK, I'm going to trigger the vote of no confidence. Does the rest of the House can't the, doesn't the rest of the Republican Party just say uh, Republican members of Congress just say, all right, here's the vote. You call, we've called for a vote. Here's the vote. We're keeping him. I mean, yeah. and, and then if it happens again, once that happens once or twice, uh, don't they say, damn, this isn't working. Uh, that provision doesn't have any teeth. We've got to listen to this guy even more. I mean, maybe it's a good thing if they trigger the vote and get beyond it. And, you know, you also have to say that for the Republican Party, for the brand, if you will, this is not a good story to see no. Republicans in, in utter disarray in Washington. And the, the DeSantis-Trump fight it looks like it's going to be really ugly uh, with a lot of personal insults. So I, I'd say for the, Repu the Republicans right now are, are in kind of an awkward spot. I think that's right. Well, uh, I was kind of shocked that Lindsey Graham was going to use this particular moment to grandstand on defense spending. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, this has been so contentious. There's so much at stake. He likes to position himself as much more of a state statesman, I think, uh, mm -hmm. behind the scenes guy, not really the rabble rouser. Uh, but but is he really going to go to the mat here? What's he doing? 
Well, I, I think one thing that he certainly is doing is agitating for more money for Ukraine. And I would say, Michael, that now that this default story, default story is over. Thank the Lord. It's going to be over by early next week. What's the next big story? Well, we got to figure out if there's one more rate hike from the Fed. But I'd say the other really big geopolitical story is the war. Yeah. And I think I think what you're seeing from Graham is agitation to get more money for Ukraine. And I think Ukraine will get more money. I mean, you're starting to see cruise missiles landing in Moscow. This this war is going to heat up dramatically in the next week or two. Uh, it seems it seems that way. And I know you have been questioning whether Putin survives. And and when I ask folks that around uh, they all kind of shake their heads like I don't understand how Russia works and say, of course, Putin survives. But, you know, um, I, I keep I keep remember I keep remembering James Carville uh, saying it's the economy, stupid. You get yep. all those people losing money, uh, all those oligarchs uh, are having trouble staying rich. Uh, he's not a popular guy in Russia. And they're, they're losing their money and they're losing their sons. Uh, losing your money and losing your sons is a bad, but, and yet, does he have that sort of an iron fist hold or will somebody get to him? I guess is the thing. You think somebody gets to him? Yes, I do. Maybe it's a combination of oligarchs and dissatisfied generals. And yes, of course, the, the, the big question is who replaces him? Is it Medvedev? Is it someone just as bad as Putin? Just as bad. I think whoever, I th no, I think whoever replaces Putin has an exit ramp. It has an ability to maybe work out some kind of truce. I'd be the first one to agree that Crimea is a horrible issue to negotiate because both Russia and Ukraine view Crimea as sacred. But I do think that some kind of a truce or some kind of negotiations is possible by the end of the summer. Let's come back to our elections. And we've only got a couple of minutes yep. here left. Um, when we look at our elections, and I, uh, one of the things that I kind of keep remembering that you told me, hell, Greg, 20 or 30 years ago was uh, we're we're 18 months away from the election, Michael. Everything and every headline today is meaningless. Um, yep. This is these are years. So yep. uh, um, as we grind over the details of today, how much will matter? How much can evolve? Uh, because um, I, I, I kind of see DeSantis emerging over Trump, but but there I go trying to apply logic uh, to politics again myself. Why, why, do, why would I think, you know, you said logical successor in the House. Why these guys don't care about logic? Well, if Trump should start to fade and it looks like there will be more indictments, of course, that might help him. You know, you look at some of right. Trump's polls, could it, in a bizarre sort of way. And if you look at DeSantis not really catching on, DeSantis maybe not showing much uh dynamism there's got to be room for one more serious candidate and i have been arguing and i'll probably be wrong but i'm going to continue to argue that one more candidate is glenn youngkin of virginia who's got a ton of money he's relatively moderate good looking uh most all all aspects of the party could support him i think youngkin may may run late youngkin may not even announce until thanksgiving but he's someone to we still have to watch you know, uh, you know, there's that old joke in Washington uh, that um, Richard Nixon showed that we didn't need a nice president and, and Reagan showed we didn't yeah. need a smart president. Yeah. And, you know, Herbert Hoover showed we didn't need a president. Um, 
uh, you can fill out any one of those any way you want, but that's that's yep. one of those old Washington jokes. One of the things, though, Greg, I've, I've watched over my lifetime has been this more preference, I guess, out in the public to have a charismatic president. Richard Nixon was not a charismatic no. president, and some you can you can argue that he was uh, you, you you can say you didn't like him but you can't say he wasn't effective and you can't say he wasn't bright he was very bright whether you agreed with what nixon did or not but then we've gotten in if you look at reagan if you look at clinton if you uh look at barack obama um you know george bush 41 was an awfully nice man but he didn't have that same level of charisma uh yep. neither did neither did 43 mm -hmm. uh, Biden did years ago, but not so much. Do will we elect a DeSantis who is has, has a resume that is sterling? There's no way you can mm -hmm. argue with DeSantis's resume, but you spend time with the guy and you go, eh? That's the problem, isn't it? So I, I would say, as of right now, at the end of May, Trump is still the favorite. I mean, you can't deny that that Trump is still the clear favorite to to win the nomination. And I still think he's got a real uphill fight to win the general election. And will he could he beat Joe Biden? And will Joe everybody I talk to talks to me about how old President Biden is? I, I can't you can't disagree. And I look. Uh, whether I, you agree with his politics or not, when you think about Joe Biden and talk to people about him, they all kind of say, well, but I'm kind of fond of him. He does seem like yep. Uncle Joe. Yep. I would like to go sit down and have a beer with him. That would be, we could go walk the dog together and find something to talk about. And you know, Michael, some, this is sometimes overlooked, but at two weeks from now, Donald Trump turns 77. So it's not like Donald Trump is a spring chicken. No. I mean, have you, have you, have you, can we talk to his fitness trainer? Can we review his dietary uh, right. habits? I mean, this guy doesn't, I mean, he's strong as hell. He's amazingly resilient, but uh, on paper, he didn't, he's, he's not built to last. I mean, the, the life expectancy in the U.S. for a man is right around 77 years old, isn't it, Greg? That's life Something expectancy. Like that. Yeah, huh? yeah, that's right. right. Okay. So, uh, you know, by the time you're 80, you're supposed to be dead. And and the uh, in America, a recent poll said that they think you're old when you're 83. And well, the actuarial tables think you're dead when you're 83. And so Joe Biden, as you know, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but if Biden finishes a second term, he'll be leaving the White House at the age of 86. Let's get an early call for Greg from Greg here uh, as we finish up a couple of quickies, Greg. This debt ceiling thing gets passed, and in a week, we don't have anything to talk about in terms of debt ceiling, yes or no? Well, it, probably, I'll just have one caveat. Could we get a credit rating downgrade after all of this is over? This happened before, yes. but, but we are not going to default. Okay, not going to default. That part will be over with. Uh, and then, are we going to have uh, another Trump-Biden presidential election in 18 months? My gut feeling tells me no that one of the two of them will not be on the ticket. I just can't tell you which one. <laughs> uh, what are the odds that one of the two will be on the ticket? I think pretty good. I, th I think I think tr Trump's base is so rock solid, it's going to be awfully hard to get, get him out. But the big argument against Donald Trump is that the Electoral College, once again, may not work in his favor. 
Greg Valliere, my great friend, the voice of Washington. If you need an explanation from Wall Street or the rest of the world, go to Greg Valliere. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. A pleasure as always. That's it, folks, for another Farcast where we cover Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Thanks for joining us. Please share us on your social media. We'll be back again next week for Harry Jennings, our producer, and for me and everybody at Hightower Advisors and Farm Miller in Washington. Have a wonderful weekend, and thanks for listening. Bye. That's it for another episode of the Farcast. Thanks to this week's guests, Jim Urio, Dan Mahaffey, and special guest, Greg Valliere. And thanks to you, our listeners. We hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy making it for you. The Farcast comes to you weekly and is produced by Michael Farr and Harry Jennings and is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all major podcast platforms. We love hearing from you every week, and you can reach us at hjennings at farmmiller.com. Let us know any questions you have and topics you'd like to hear us cover. We would like to remind you that the Farcast podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal or financial advice. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions expressed and provided in this podcast, including by speakers who are not office employees or agents of Hightower Advisors or Farm Miller in Washington, are not necessarily those of Hightower Advisors, Farm Miller in Washington, or any firm any of our guests may represent. Any mention of a specific security should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell, and please be aware the past performance is not a guide to the future performance of any security, index, fund, manager, or strategy. We strongly recommend you review with a financial professional before you make any investment decision. And if we can be of assistance at Farm Miller in Washington, please reach out to me at hjennings at farmmiller.com. We are here to help and and I'll be happy to put any of our listeners in touch with one of our investment professionals for a complimentary review of your portfolio and your investment goals. Take care, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll be back with you next week. Go beyond the headlines each week with the Farcast. Wall Street, Washington, and the world. Farm Miller in Washington is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, and SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. All information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC have not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Farm Miller in Washington and Hightower Advisors, LLC and any of its affiliates assume no liability or any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to the information. This podcast and the materials contained herein were created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Or Miller and Washington and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented in any way to any entity as tax or legal advice. Clients are urged to consult their tax and or legal advisors for related questions.